0: Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. On this episode, I visit best-selling author Kate Moss at her publishing house in London. And as you might expect from someone who's sold over 5 million copies of her novels across the globe, Kate's stories have beautiful, evocative, vivid descriptions of the world, including Paris, rural France, Amsterdam, North America, and even good old Yorkshire. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast author Kate Moss. believe when I was doing my research that you've sold more than five million copies of your novels in over 40 countries and they've been translated into 38 languages now that as an author is very very
1: impressive it's absolutely fantastic and when people say those stats you go oh well that can that actually be true and in fact it's a hu- it's five million of labyrinths so when you put the others in it's a little bit higher as well but it's it is a fantastic thing because in the end the only thing for me, that matters as a writer is, do people enjoy reading what I write? It That's what it's about for me. So, you know, one of my publishers once said to me, "The people have spoken," <laughs> and that's how it feels. Actually, it's just such a joy. It's hard to,
0: as a creative myself, and I you know know lots of creatives. It's very hard to write a good book and then get it published because you can be absolutely brilliant. I know plenty of people that have written, written brilliant novels how did that that work for you what was the process that eventually got you published?
1: Well I I think you're absolutely right and I think it's really important for anyone listening who is working away is firstly you've got to have integrity about your own writing so write what you want to write and what you think and work hard at that don't let yourself be persuaded to try something else because that might sell. Because the market changes all the time, the market moves on. So books have got to come from the heart. The second thing is there is a huge amount of luck involved in publishing. If someone had said to me 20 years ago you wouldn't, that I would make my living as a writer, I would have laughed in their face. Because that's for most of us not why we go into it. And I think knowing that, that all you can do is your best and then you hope for a fair win behind you. I was in a slightly odd position in getting published in that I used to be a publisher and I worked with many brilliant agents and editors and I was then essentially talking about a pregnancy book and I was expecting my second child and I said to a friend of mine who was an agent, you know, it's really frustrating when I was pregnant the first time, the book I wanted to read wasn't there and now I'm pregnant again, it's still not there. And he challenged me and he said, Why don't you write it? Stop moaning, write it. And I said, I will. And then he rang up and said, I've got you a contract. So I started in non-fiction. And that man, Mark Lucas, is still my agent all these years later. And then out of that, I moved into fiction afterwards. So I I had a piece of luck that, you know, that I'm still very grateful for.
0: What was the pregnancy book? What was missing from the pregnancy book market?
1: I was interested in what it felt like emotionally, not what you felt like physically. So I wanted to know if other women felt a bit invaded by the baby they were growing or they were worried that they wouldn't quite be themselves or were worried that they wouldn't be any good at being a mother. All of these sorts of things. So I interviewed lots of other women. And of course, we know that we all are pregnant in a different way. We all go into our pregnancies with different um, hopes and fears. We have different levels of support, you know, all of this. So it's a lovely thing. Still people come up to me and said, oh... I had your pregnancy book and now this is, you know, little Matilda and she's, you know, 20 and all the rest of it. And it was, it was a lovely way into writing. But because I was writing other women's stories, I started to realise that actually what I liked was character. And then I started to think, oh, maybe I'll have a go at novel. So your
0: novels are very much based abroad. France is a key feature. What was the inspiration behind The French Connection? The French Connection. That that
1: should be some sponsorship. Absolutely. I'm probably wearing a French Connection jumper (laughs) as we speak. Get that down. Get that down. All of my fiction comes from place, the novel, it wouldn't surprise anyone to know, that means the most to me is Wuthering Heights. And I genuinely think that book has been the biggest influence of anything else. It was the idea that landscape itself was a character, was the lead character. And also that you couldn't tell the story that you were telling set anywhere else, that place and character and plot were inextricably linked. That it wasn't just a backdrop, you know. So with France, we've just, again, a very lucky moment that um, my lovely mother-in-law retired from teaching and she had a great fondness for France. My husband had lived in France for a long time and she had a friend who had a friend who had a friend who was an estate agent who knew someone in Carcassonne. And that's the only reason we went there. And I now look back and think, oh my, we might never have gone there. And the second that I visited, and that was back in 1989, just fell in love with the place and the landscape and the history. And more than that, I thought, oh, I belong here, as well as Sussex, which is my, you know, my home home, as it were. And out of that, I then started to be there and live there on and off. And little by little, it was like the whispering in the landscape story started to come. And of course, the first one that I wrote inspired there was Labyrinth which tells the story of a a group of heretical Christians called the Cathars back in the, uh, the 13th century and because of being in Carcassonne I found my writer's voice and that was it. It was the connection of history and land and character and just kind of shutting your eyes and listening to the stories that you could tell and that's really the sort of writer I've been ever since. Describe the region to me. I mean, it's
0: beautiful. I've been reading The Burning Chambers, your latest book, and the level of description and the language is just stunning. But the countryside and the villages and the historical input is incredible. Describe, first of all, the region to me. What's it like?
1: I think that the southwest of France is the most magical part of France. Of course, I would say that. But what I love about it is actually, that it has everything. So it has hot summers, very high hot winds, the Tramontana and the Sears wind that come one from the mountain and one up from the sea. It has what's called the Garrigue, which is kind of rough brushland, really, that is kind of rocky. It's not yet the mountains, the Pyrenees are a bit further down. And it also has these extraordinary series of bastides, so walled cities or formerly walled cities. So there is a shape of sort of this wonderful curved shape of many of the towns and the villages. And of course, that we know is to keep invaders away. And that's why you see so many gates and things. But there is the sense, of course, of row after row after row of vines. You know, it was the Romans when it was the area called Septimania planted all these vines. And of course, that is a huge part, you know, van der Pedoc is such a big part of the the tourism industry now, the wonderful wines, particularly the roses down there. And you, of course, have got the coast in Nabon, you have the Mediterranean Sea. And in the spring, I've just come back from Carcassonne a couple of days ago, and I was standing in a t shirt on the Pont Vieux, the old bridge that links the medieval part of Carcassonne to the Bastille, to the 14th century part. And when you stand in the middle of the bridge looking down at the river, 30 kilometres to the southwest, you can see the Pyrenees, and they're still covered in snow and so for me it has everything of land and it still is very in touch with the seasons so you'll start to see the yellow gorse and the broom then you'll start to see the cherry blossom and the cherries you'll see the sunflowers come in and of course lavender and then you see these sunflowers all start to droop and the colours of autumn so everything that is wonderful about nature happens in that part of the world in sequence, and that turning of the seasons there is so very beautiful.
0: Is that the bridge that, in the Burning Chambers, Minou walks across and has to pay to cross the bridge? Exactly
1: right. Those sort of historical details are incredible. I mean, how
0: do you you research that
1: history? I love the research. I'm not a historian, and I try my best not to make clanging errors, but I'm a, a, a normal reader who just loves reading history. But actually... There is so much by that period, the 16th century. The Burning Chambers starts in 1562 in Carcassonne and it's on the eve of the wars of religion, the civil wars essentially, that are going to destroy France, rip France in two. But of course the characters on the eve of that war in Carcassonne do not yet know this. So it's a painful thing because you know we're about to spoil, I'm going to spoil their lives any minute now. But with the research it's a combination of things. So it's of course, reading the scholars, particularly the French historians who have studied that period of history, the wars of religion, the 16th and 17th century. It's also going to museums. It's seeing the artifacts of the time. It's looking at the old maps. So when you look at an old map of Carcassonne there, you can see the toll booths on either end. And then, of course, you start to read sometimes not really plays yet but there's certainly a lot of record then you know written either in Latin or indeed in French and so little by little you just build up a picture postcard and it's exactly like doing a jigsaw you start to say okay if I had lived there if I was a woman of my age in Carcassonne in 1562 what would I be wearing? What would I be eating? What would I be drinking? What was the climate like? Is it like it is now or was it slightly different? So it's just you're a magpie as a novelist and particularly a historical novelist. You're always looking for an imaginary truth but set against the backdrop of real fact and history and that's how i go about it i do a lot of field research and what i mean by that is a lot of walking about and climbing up things and scaling walls and sampling local food indeed i mean answers. you know yeah, terrible. it would be that's wrong not food. to try the wine wouldn't it so there we go yes
0: <laughs> it's the amount of detail that you go to into is incredible and i think everyone you know reads a book thinking well i've got a book in me but when you read something like yours you think i don't have that me that's just I'm surprised someone hasn't given you a doctorate in (laughs) history from Oxford or something well maybe now
1: they will yes exactly
0: but we'll have to note those down we've got the the, uh, French connection sponsorship sponsorship and an honorary doctorate perfect coming up with it all here in your forthcoming book not the one that's released now this is a a trilogy so I'm reading well it's probably
1: going to be for Books actually. Right. It started what is a, off. What is four books? A quartet. A, a quartet. So yes. That would make yes, if, we, sense, if yes. we go with that. Yes, we go with that. And the reason for that actually feeds from your previous question. It's about research. That in my mind, I had the sense of 300 years of history. It's a Romeo and Juliet story, a Catholic family and a Huguenot, a Protestant family. It's about betrayal and love and war and the consequences of war, and it's about diaspora the Protestants being you know, sent from their homes, expelled from their countries, having to build a new life somewhere else. And so we go from Carcassonne to, to Toulouse, to Paris, to Amsterdam, to London, to the New World, to South Africa, where the novel starts and finishes. But one of the reasons I think it's now four, well, at least four, is because to start with the burning chambers, I knew was going to be the beginning of the conflict. At the time when Catholics and Protestants didn't yet believe that they couldn't carry on being friends. They didn't know that the powers that be in the courts and in the cathedrals were going to make them be enemies. You know, that thing we always feel, we're not going to be influenced by racist ranting, we're not going to be influenced by politics, we're going to just make the choice about the people. And of course, as time goes on, it becomes harder and harder. So I knew I wanted to start then, but as I started to research in the archives and I discovered things about that period in Carcassonne and Toulouse, I thought, oh, there's so much to So I'd thought that first book would go from 1562 to 1592. The minute I started writing, there was so much. I knew I just had to concentrate on the beginning. So now there's four books at least um, because I feel that there was enough to warrant it. My lead characters, Minu and Pete and their families, they, they said, we're not done with this yet. You know, you need to tell more detail of this story. But in the next book, The City of Tears, and that's kind of, attribute to the fact that a lot of it is set in Amsterdam and the waterways and the dams of course the book will start in 1572 with the most notorious engagement of the wars of religion namely the St Bartholomew's Day Massacre but then it will jump forward a period of years because otherwise there's going to be at least a hundred books. You (laughs) won't know where to
0: to stop. So you spend a lot of time in Amsterdam then?
1: Yes absolutely. Um, What I did with this series is it's the first time I've ever had a had the luxury to plan a whole series. So I did all the big research over a period of maybe three years, three or four years when I wasn't able to travel so much. And so I did all of that then, and then specific research for each book. So once I'd got the big historical stuff, the shape of the Wars of Religion under my belt, I then started to research specifically for The Burning Chambers, which is the book that's just out. And now, of course, I've been researching for The City of Tears. And so I've spent a lot of time in Amsterdam in the past. At the moment, the bit I'm writing of that is the Paris section. So I'm having the terrible job of having to go Back and forwards to Paris all the time. This is an enviable job. <laughs> I know, I know.
0: <laughs> I think many people go. France is the number one in uh, the most popular place in the world for tourism. Is it? It is. Yes. Oh, it's yes. just. Um, I think it's been number one for a while, and actually, Spain has just taken over the USA as number two. Oh, but what well, I think what surprises people when you go to rural France and the villages and even the, the cities is how sparsely populated. Yes, it totally, still
1: is totally. And I think I think the thing is that we always. British people born and bred in English schools, or Scottish schools, or Welsh schools, Irish schools, have this sense of France as being, we're kissing cousins with France, which completely overlooks the fact that France is much bigger than the United Kingdom. And there are many more big cities, but there aren't that many more people. So it is a really noticeable thing that, of course, when you're in Paris, or for me, Toulouse, Bordeaux, Lyon you know wherever you are in those big cities they they're so cosmopolitan and but the minute particularly the villages in the southwest you know it is exactly that as the shops shut at 12 o'clock you can hear a pin drop until the shops all open again at four o'clock and particularly out of season when in the southwest it's very cold it's often snowy very strong winds that meet in that on those plains outside Toulouse and in Carcassonne it feels like an abandoned landscape sometimes. But for me, I love that contrast. Uh, you know, I could never live in a place that was hot all the year round. I like the way that life moves on, like in some ways it always has done. So what's the best thing about Paris? The best thing about Paris, I think the best thing about Paris is it's utter, here I am, you know, this is me. And the extraordinary different characters of the different quartiers. So you can be looking at the most beautiful sort of Maison de Metro and all the grand boulevards built by Haussmann. You can be in the Tuileries Gardens. Or then you can be creeping around in Père Lachaise, you know, looking at the tomb of Eloise and Abelard and all of those. So I like the cheek by jowl thing. And I also very much enjoy that wherever you stay. So I was just recently staying in the quarter near the Boulevard on the obviously writing Huguenots, and the Bastille. And all the restaurants and cafes, you know, people live locally, as well as it being an international global city. And I think it's very, very distinctive to Paris, that sense of everything's local and everything's global at the same time.
0: People moan about the Parisians, don't they? But I've always found them perfectly charming and, and nice. And I've spent a lot of time in Paris.
1: I think that often, we all know that the British facility with languages is pretty poor. And there is also an arrogance assuming that the entire world will speak English and therefore we don't really need to bother. So I think what often happens when people go to Paris for the first time is that they, they are so anxious about not being very good at speaking French that they almost kind of go at it with their fists up like ready for a fight you know whereas of course the truth is if you make an effort wherever you are people appreciate the effort. So I'm interested in your research about
0: Amsterdam what was Amsterdam like in the 17th century is that when you were 17th or 18th century? 17th. 17th century yeah what was it like then? Well I'll have to come back and talk to you about (laughs) that one because I haven't
1: really done that side of research yet so what I have is that sense of the knowledge of the diaspora of Huguenots where did they go and, of course, many people left France before they were finally forcibly expelled when the Edict of Nantes was revoked in 1685 by the grandson of the man, the great king, Henry IV, who did bring pre- peace to France. And if he had not been assassinated, who knows what would have happened, you know. But so there was this sort of strange period of peace And tolerance and then it all started up again. And Huguenots had been leaving little by little by little. And of course, many, you know, Huguenots never numbered more than about ten percent of the French population, but they were very overrepresented in areas of the law, in medicine, in engineering, you know, they were those classes and certainly in commerce. So I've looked into why was it that Amsterdam was such a mecca? And, of course, it was because it was the great Protestant Republic. You know, well, it wasn't a republic, there was a king, but, you know, it was that. So I know the sort of historical atmosphere. I've spent a lot of time, I always go on book tour with every book to Amsterdam. It's one of my favourite cities in the world. I've always wanted to write about it, and this is the first opportunity. And so I know the streets of the centre well. I have all of those maps about how big was Amsterdam, which of those canals that we all know so well like for instance, Kracht and Herrenkracht were they there then or not but I haven't yet been there long enough and my my research living trip for the City of Tears will happen in January. So how long will you go to Amsterdam for? I will knit backwards and forwards but I'll probably be there for about a month. that will be amazing. I know. I spent I know. three months
0: there once. Oh just how yeah. university. We Literally my boyfriend and I at the time we tossed a coin we were going to go spend the summer in Brighton or let's spend the summer in Amsterdam and it was tails oh, wow. we leave the next day and we actually got on a plane the next day oh
1: good for you had enough
0: money for three nights in a hotel and that was it in a PA system because he yeah. was a musician and luckily we made made friends with these Swedish girls who let us have their bed and they share the bed it was <laughs> one of those sort of post-university things and then just spent three months there and then another yeah. six months in Belgium and it was just oh the brilliant. most wonderful yeah, yeah. place I mean it was a, bit, a difficult time for us we had no money but we'd play music for beer they'd give us free beer that's right there is a <laughs> which is the main thing yeah
1: I mean we must always be careful in all of our travels not to see only the thing that you see as a, a willing and open tourist and, and not understand that there are always pressures under every for everybody in every city and all the rest of it having said that that sort of lightness of spirit in the centre of Amsterdam that sort of sense that yeah okay you know anything could happen now what feels like, as a visitor, freedom. And of course, one of the things that is so important to me, because all of my fiction is so set in specific place and animated by place and by the history of a place, is that Amsterdam is remarkably intact in terms of the footprint, the shape of the city. So you can see the rings as the city got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But you look up on those wonderful merchants' houses and essentially you are looking up. If you can strip away the electric lights and the, you know, whatever else it is, you are at least looking at the ghost of the city that was beneath the modern times. Whereas, of course, in some places, particularly, of course, Germany, the west of Germany, the bombing of the Second World War in particular has destroyed that footprint. So you can't see the ghost of the old city in quite the same sort of way. So that's what I will do when I'm in Amsterdam. And I'll sit and I'll tap away at my laptop But then whenever I need a break, I will be walking those streets and I'll be imagining my characters there with their very different clothes, but still smelling the same.
0: My my top recommendation for Amsterdam, if you've done all the main museums, is the Resistance Museum, the Museum of the Resistance. Have you been there? I have, yes. It's incredible, really very moving and off the beaten track, off the sort of museum path. You mentioned earlier Wuthering Heights and I, am I right in thinking you're writing some non-fiction about... Uh, I curated princesses?
1: a short story collection uh, where, and I've done the introduction for that. Some amazing writers are involved in that, sort of Dorothy Coombson, Louise Doughty, Nikesh Shukla, um, 16 writers and it's called I Am Heathcliff and it's just 16 contemporary writers taking that line from Wuthering Heights as an inspiration for a short story for now. And it's essentially a tribute to Emily Bronte. July 2018 is the 200th anniversary of her birth. And although, obviously, I'm in the middle of a massive writing project with the burning chambers and and the books to follow, Wuthering Heights is my favorite novel of all time. I have never changed my view on that. I think Emily Bronte, by writing that, changed what it was possible for women to write. Um, I think it's ambitious. I think it's a novel that changes every time you read it. And so when I heard this was happening, I just felt I couldn't not be involved in it in some way. So I haven't written a story for it. I've just done the introduction and sort of curated the... other people who've written the stories so I feel that I've been very lucky to be allowed to play with these wonderful contemporary writers without having to put a story of my own in.
0: Have you been to Haworth? I have
1: been to Haworth and we will be doing a launch event in July up at the Parsonage there with some of the writers uh, reading from their work.
0: From a travel point of view describe Haworth and the Bronte sisters for people who might not know of them and might not know the beautiful village in Yorkshire where they... Wrote from.
1: It, well, I think it's... I'm always suspicious of needing to know the biography of a writer in order to appreciate her work. But in the case of the Brontes, it is very hard to separate biography from work because they were a family originally of six siblings, five daughters and a son. The two youngest were sent away to a, a terrible school uh, after their mother had died, which was the basis for the horrible school in uh, Charlotte Brontes, Jane Eyre. And then they both died when they were very young. And Emily, who wrote one novel, one amazing novel in 1847, a year before her death in 1848, and Anne and Charlotte and the brother Branwell, the four of those children left alone having lost their mother, the aunt they loved also died, two older sister, you know, death everywhere, living in the shadow of this, and created an imaginary language and imaginary worlds. And then Charlotte and Branwell carried on with that particular thing And Emily and Anne created their own new imaginary world called Gondal and there's lots of poetry and then they published they were obliged to publish their novels anonymously and they were published in volumes together and Emily never lived to see the success of Wuthering Heights and when she died the coffin that was built to bury her was the smallest that had ever been made for an adult in that village. When I first went to Haworth, because I had Wuthering Heights in my mind and the isolation and the moors, I realised I'd done that thing of, of conflating the life with the work. So Wuthering Heights is this house right up on the top of the moors and it's really austere and cold and isolated. And then a little bit further down the valley is this beautiful place, Thrushcross Grange, which is more tamed. And I realised in my mind, I therefore thought of the parsonage as Wuthering Heights. Of course, when you get there... The parsonage is one of the biggest houses in the village and although it is sombre because it overlooks the graveyard and of course the graveyard, as all graveyards are, is surrounded by yew trees so it is dark, it's actually not isolated at all, it's in the middle of the village. And it was very interesting seeing that and realising how one's view of the work and films had influenced what I imagined. So they were a very close family, they had a lot of company and they were right in the heart of the village. It's just that Emily was very reclusive. So it is an extraordinary story, these amazing novels. I mean, obviously, Charlotte Bronte wrote more novels, you know, not least least of all Jane Eyre and Villette. And I would say Anne Bronte, probably the most feminist writer of all of them. And, uh, you know, The Tenant of Wildfeld Hall and Agnes Grey. And it is the most extraordinary story. And anyone who has not read about them or read their work should rush out and try it now. And they are both of their time, but they speak to eternal issues of jealousy, love, obsession, violence, religion, landscape, nature, the question of who you are, what do you want and Wuthering Heights is one of those very rare novels that has
0: everything. And you should visit as well Howard. You should visit as well. And And then when you've
1: read Wuthering Heights you can read The Burning Chambers and you will go ah yes I see all of the landscape, that's the point of the landscape, that the landscape reflects what the people feel so it's that old fashioned idea of pathetic fallacy that you know there's the storm inside your head and there's the storm on the heath, or in the case of I Maine it's the Garrigue and the lands of South West France. So
0: people who don't know, describe to me the Yorkshire
1: Moors. I think the thing that is so different is the moors are are huge and often, particularly at the higher points, it's a lot of low cover of Shrub and grassland, and not so much trees. Whereas I write about the landscapes in the southwest of France, which is forests and plains, and so it's very, very, it's much more varied, and you don't get this huge expanses. So I would say that, in a way, if you've read the pioneer fiction of people like Willa Cather, um, any of those great American pioneering writers, it's the sense of the space stretching out before you of the moors that is so significant, and the idea that you could leave your house and walk and walk and walk for the whole day. I never meet another soul. So it's not a landscape that speaks to me, actually, but the relationship of land and emotion is the thing that inspires me to write. It sounds like
0: you don't have that much time to travel to other places, but when you do have time to travel to other other places, where do you go and where have you been?
1: Well, I have been very lucky in later life, I suppose, in that because my books have found readers, it has meant that I have travelled I've more countries since I became a writer than I had for the whole of the 45 years before. I suppose that countries I visited that I'd never been to before, I've really enjoyed travelling around America. Before, I'd only really been to the West and the East Coast. The obvious places. The obvious places. And quickly. So... But to travel around America and particularly the the centre, you know, I've really enjoyed going to places like Minneapolis and Denver and, you know, and then obviously further down on the on the eastern seaboard, going down to sort of Raleigh-Durham and then up, you know. And so I've enjoyed that, seeing different parts of America that you wouldn't necessarily automatically have found your way to otherwise. I've loved travelling in Scandinavia, Oslo, in particular but also Reykjavik and then those some of the middle middle European cities and countries Slovenia, Lithuania, Latvia, Poland I'd never been to until I was a published author and so I've I feel that that's been a wonderful thing. For holiday of course I'm in Kakasson. I still feel that thing when I get off the train and I see the medieval city again I think oh And of course, I'm very lucky to live in Sussex. I am absolutely a Chichester girl born and bred. And for me, the landscape of the downs, the sea, that combination of cathedral cloister and the wildness of the woods and, you know, Kingly Vale, which is the oldest yew forest in Europe. So I have two places that I call home that are the places that I would choose to go to on holiday anyway. So I don't need to rush off so much.
0: You're the founder director of the Women's Prize for Fiction. That's the the largest annual celebration of women's
1: writing in the world.
0: Is it important to you to promote the work of other female writers?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think that it's not about not enjoying writing by men. Obviously, I do. But for me, it's about making sure that all the voices are heard, that there isn't just one narrative or one type of narrative. And certainly when we were setting the prize up, although some 60% of novels published in the UK were written by women, so there was no problem with access to the market, fewer than 9% of books shortlisted for literary prizes, major literary prizes, were by women, which did just suggest that there, was, there wasn't there was a problem with getting published. It was a question of women's work not being honoured in the same way or seen as literary in the same way or celebrated in the same way. So for me, I'm a positive person and I think that using your voice to support other people is obviously the right thing to do and I think that what we do with the Women's Prize is simply say there's lots more stories out there and this of course goes absolutely for black and minority ethnic writers, for writers of disability, for writers of different genders and fluidity of gender. Um, It's not about saying let's shrink the table, it's about saying let's have a bigger table and have everybody on the table and the reason it matters is this, that a woman should be able to write a man. A person of colour should be able to write a white person or a brown person or a black person. It matters simply that artists, we have a wider range of artists because the, the broader the range of stories we have, the richer we as readers become. So the Women's Prize for me is about celebration and about just saying, come on in, the more the merrier and expanding the view of what is seen as literature and good, good writing.
0: It's an interesting time in the world politically at the moment. Do you think it's important to look at literature from a historical point of view to use that to reflect on what's happening now?
1: I think at the moment there's an awful lot going on in the world that is perturbing in all sorts of ways. In the era of women's rights, there is certainly the sense that gains are being rolled back in terms of women and men being treated as equal citizens. We can see in America the huge importance of the Black Lives Matter campaign, but also the resurgence of, of a whole school of thought that clearly doesn't believe that everybody should have the same rights. And, and you know, we could see this all over the world in, in many, many different ways. And I think that what happens when things are tough and we know more about it than we used to because of 24 hour a day, social media and news feeds and everything, is that often people turn to theatre, to books, to poetry, to painting, to deal with the emotions that are strong and difficult but with the benefit of distance. Historical fiction is, is very popular at the moment. I am absolutely writing about the Huguenot-Catholic conflict in 1562 in Carcassonne. That's what The Burning Chambers is about. Except, what is The Burning Chambers really about? It's about families. It's about love. It's about what happens if you're told that your neighbours are now your enemy. It's what happens about when decisions made in your name Result in you being told you have 24 hours to leave your home where you've never known anywhere else. I think what happens in historical fiction, sadly, history repeats itself. We do not learn. We can see this. I am absolutely not writing about the contemporary world, but are the echoes here in the contemporary world? Of course they are. And I think sometimes we can listen and hear stories in a fictional setting set in the past that amplify what we're feeling now. And sometimes that's a better way, maybe in the short term, to deal with what we're feeling. And then you take that sense back to what we see around us now. And I think that that is very powerful, and I think that's why historical fiction is very popular at the moment. It seems such
0: a shame that these arguments that were going on in 1562 seem to be repeated over and over and over again. You would have thought that we'd have got over that and be a little bit more enlightened now. However, here we have different races, different religions, and everyone fighting Mm. over what they believe in it just seems so I would have hoped that we'd have been more enlightened
1: than that you would but you see I think the thing is that on the one hand there's an idealism which I was brought up with and my wonderful parents they're both they're both gone now but they did a huge amount for the local community, gave you know ev- lots of voluntary work and all the rest of it. And just that sense that it was your responsibility as a living, breathing human person to try and leave the world a little bit better than when you found it. On the other side of that, there is a desire for power, for belligerence, to own more than other people, to beat other people. And I think it's that, that when those qualities are in the ascendant, then obviously things seem to fracture and fall apart. And when the more idealistic qualities are in the ascendant, then there's a different atmosphere. And unfortunately, history is like a seesaw. It's never been linear. It never is a progress towards things getting better. I'm afraid it's like a progress of a wave. But once you know that, then it means you don't have to be as downcast because you know that this is what human beings are like. And all I do as a novelist is is write stories and all I want is for my readers to fall in love with the characters and care what happens to them if at the end of that there's still a sense of uh, yeah that's that's how history goes then that's also the good too
0: well I have to say I'm addicted to the burning chambers and oh, I can't good. wait I really <laughs> am you. and with a three-year-old and a five-year-old I don't get that much time no, no, read, okay. so I'm squeezing it in yeah. and I can't wait to uh to almost like I'm rushing home to Oh, you that's know, so to, nice to, read to hear. It. It. Thank
1: you. Uh, Thank my you. last
0: question is about music, as it always is with all my guests, because I firmly believe that music um, and travel go hand in hand. People have more time and music evokes memories and gives you that strong connection to a place. So I'm going to ask you if there's one song that you could choose that reminds you of a particular moment of travel that has meant something to you, what would that song be?
1: Oh, I think linking it with travel as well and significance in my own life, it, it would probably be the song Les Vieux Amants by Jacques Brel. So it's the old lovers, really. And the whole song is a song about these two old people who fell in love and have grown old together. And, and they, still, they still are the people that matter most to each other. And it's the most beautiful lyrical song. And the reason I think I'd choose that is that when I was at school, I met my boyfriend in a school, joint school production of La Vie Présienne by Offenbach, And he was singing and I was in the orchestra. And we went out for a couple of years and then we went our separate ways to university. And then eight years after that, we met on a train and we've now been together for 40 years.
0: Oh, that's lovely.
1: And he introduced me to Jacques Brel and to that song. So that song, Two Old People Growing Old Together Still In Love.
0: Well, thank you so much, Kate Moss, and especially for those lovely descriptions of landscapes and history. Truly inspirational. I'm off to reacquaint myself with Wuthering Heights. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast.